Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. To God alone be the glory. Let me encourage you to turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 16. This is where our text will begin. Today we will be in Genesis 16 and 17. Have you been doing your homework? All right, great to hear that. So every week, just as a reminder, we read a couple of chapters or whatever chapter I will be preaching the upcoming Sunday. And this next Sunday, we'll be preaching out of Genesis 18. So this week, you have it light, just one chapter. But it means that every day, read that same chapter. Read it again each day. So that in preparation for the sermon, your heart, your mind... Your soul has been tempered, cultivated, curated, marinated, ready to hear whatever it is uh, that God may have to say uh, to us and among us when we gather together on Sunday. So here's where we have been, if you're just joining us. We're in an ongoing series called Patriarchs and Matriarchs. We're spending some time with what some of the New Testament calls the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. So that means that many of the heroes and heroines of the book of Genesis become the subject of our study. Now, I have a a little bit of a booming overtone to my voice today. You might pull me back a little bit. Uh, That's not because I'm angry. (laughs) I just made a little bit of an echo up here on stage. But what we're doing is we are attempting to learn something from our ancient mothers and fathers in the faith Not because they are heroic by any of today's standards, not because they were impervious to pain, not because they were invincible, that they did everything right, but quite the opposite. We're studying them because they did so many things wrong, (laughs) and they failed and fell down on their face, and But in the midst of their brokenness and in the midst of their trying and falling and getting back up, they learned something about the love of God. In fact, more than that, they began to know God intimately, and it made all the difference in their lives. So we're attempting to see something in their lives that may speak to us as we attempt to walk in the way of faith. And thus far, here's where we've been. Abram and Sarai, who later will be called Abraham and Sarah. In fact, by the end of our sermon today, they have a name change But Abram and Sarai begin their journey in barrenness. They can't have a baby. But we've been talking about how barrenness is so much more than just that physical struggle of being unable to have a child, but it represents those seasons also in life where we are barren, where we are unable to produce answers, unable to produce solutions to our problems. But we've said thus far, three weeks in, that barrenness is God's favorite venue Because it's in seasons of barrenness when we have no capacity to fix ourselves, to remedy or redeem ourselves. It's in those seasons when we're forced to come to the edge of our resources and in humility 
we seek a help that is bigger than us. And we learn a dependency upon a God who is capable and able and willing to get us through those seasons. And that's why we're studying Abram and Sarai. And today we come to chapter 16, and here's how it begins. The author makes sure that you and I know that even though many years have passed, they still persist in their barrenness. Listen to the way the first verse opens. It's a stark reminder of their reality. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. That one statement alone is a reminder that even though we have made it four chapters into their story and many, many years have been covered, and even though their livestock has grown and their people, their neighbors have grown and, and they have developed and traveled and made their way through this journey of faith, they persist in this barrenness. It raises the same question that we raised last week, which is the longer we persist in barrenness, it raises a question, how much time is reasonable for God to prove God's promise. Because in the early days, he promised Abram, I will give you plenty of children, and I will give you land, and I will give you a name that no one will ever forget, and yet it's been so long and nothing seemingly has happened. You know, you go long enough in an unchanged circumstance, and something begins to happen in you. You go long enough in an unchanged circumstance. Something begins to happen in you. And you begin to believe, yes, you still believe, but you begin to morph in your belief. And what we see with Sarai and Abram is that they still believed God. They believed and God reckoned it as righteous, but they were beginning to experience a shifting in the way they believed because Good grief, it's been so long. Verse 2 picks up, and here's where the story continues. So, she had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, You see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children? Go into my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by, by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah, Abram's like, well, if you insist. I mean, Egyptian, beautiful, young Hagar. If you insist, I'm, but it's all about you, honey. So if I can, you know, help me, help you. Go into my slave girl. Abram says, yes, sure. And so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, listen to the verbs, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife. The situation had grown desperate. Sometimes when you persist long enough in an unchanged circumstance, while you may still believe in the thing that's coming, your belief begins to morph. Yes, I still believe, Abram, that God's promise to us was true. 
Yes, I believe it, but maybe, maybe this is what it means. I mean, Hagar seems capable. Maybe this is how God intended to bless us. Have we ever thought about that? Because now we've got to start looking at our options. And maybe, remember back when, when the famine came and we had to go down to Egypt? That was a couple of chapters back. We did that last Sunday. They went down to Egypt. Remember that story? He's on the way into Egypt, and he's like, hey, babe, let's tell them that you're my sister. And she's like, I'm not from Alabama. Remember, remember that? Turns out she was from Tennessee. (laughs) Maybe while we were there, God intended for those things to happen. And in her mind, she's thinking, belief. I believe, but maybe it's beginning to morph because in order to get out of Egypt, Pharaoh said, you know what, get out of here. Take all the animals you can. Take some extra people with you. Take these supplies. And they picked up Hagar. And here she is, and maybe, I don't know, maybe this is what God intended. When God said, I mean, maybe we misheard this, the promise. Maybe we didn't understand it, and so maybe this is his, his way, and it's, it's reasonable. Should we consider that? See, I, you persist long enough in an unchanged circumstance, and you begin to shift how you believe. Whether it's healthy or not, you just do. Can I tell you that I know how that goes? Just to be vulnerable with you and share a, a time in, in my life. When I was a pastor in Tennessee, um, in the beginning of my pastoral ministry, uh, I served a church in Tennessee and they're great people. And I was there into my seventh year, really, but somewhere around the fifth year, um, I slipped into a, a real kind of funk, a depression. And it was kind of dark. And I, I'm serious, I, it really was. No matter what I did, nothing seemed to work, nothing seemed to change, nothing seemed to grow. I mean, I was pouring my life out into this place where I was absolutely sure that I was called to be, and nothing was changing. <laughs> nothing was changing on the staff, nothing was changing in the church itself, and we weren't growing. I was preaching three times a week. By the way, that's too much to listen to any preacher. <laughs> and I just, just killing it, I was just killing it, and it was killing me. And I really was, in a, and now looking back, I was in a serious depression because I know at one point I actually really began to question, maybe God hasn't called me for this. Maybe I misheard it. Maybe I misunderstood. Maybe I'm not called to preach and to be a, a pastor. And so I started looking into PhD programs to become a counselor, to become a psychologist, to become a pastoral counselor of sorts. To, so maybe, maybe I misread this calling, right? See, the longer you persist, in an unchanged circumstance, your mind and your heart, your spirit begin to play tricks on you and you begin to listen to voices that otherwise you would not have listened to. And thankfully, God sent people in my life who helped me see the bigger picture and we made it through that dark time. But see, I know where Hagar and where Abram, uh, where Sarai and Abram are coming from. So they did. Abram said, okay. And Hagar gets pregnant. Maybe this is the way. Ah, Let's give it a shot. Hagar gets pregnant, and and the text goes on. We won't read this portion of the text, but it goes on, and it gets really tense in the house, you think. (laughs) And the text says that Hagar begins to look with contempt upon her mistress Sarai, giving her dirty looks. Look what you have done to me. I've been violated. Don't, Don't forget that those verbs that are used took her, gave her, he went into her, are words that are associated with violation, even forms of rape. There was no consent. She, she was a slave girl. 
No matter how we look at it, you and I look at it through our 21st century eyes and we say, well, there's all kinds of wrong on this. Not the, not the least of which is she's a slave, <laughs> that there's a, there's a slavery situation going on there, that she was manipulated, violated, and so now in the house she's pregnant, there, there's tension, and Abram and Sarah begin to argue about it. And Sarah is like, you know what, this thing's on you. And Abram's like, no, this thing's on you, this is your idea. And there's tension, and Abram says, look, she's your slave girl, you deal with her as you want to, and leave me alone about it. Paraphrase. And the text then says, Sarai, quote, dealt harshly with Hagar. And that's all it says. It doesn't elaborate, it doesn't say what that means, but here's what we do know. In some ancient manuscripts, verse 6 is where it ends. There is no verse 7 through 14, the next part of the story. In some places, it just ends there. They were done with her, they got rid of her, and that was it. But when those who have handed down the Holy Scriptures to us were telling these stories, they made sure to tell the next thing that happens, what we're about to read. Because the next thing that happens says something about the character and the nature of God that you and I have to hear all these many centuries later. Let's pick up the story in verse 7. The angel of the Lord then found her, that's Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, Where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, now you have conceived and shall bear a son, and you shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man. I love that. (laughs) You can't make that stuff up. It's there, right there. I mean, (laughs) with his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall live at odds with all his kin, So she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are Elroi. For she said, have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael we got to see what's happening here in this scene. We have to know the situation. Because here is where the story turns. She's thrown away. She runs away having been dealt harshly with, as the text says. And there she is running in the wilderness. She's found violated, isolated, weeping in the wilderness. She's violated, isolated, weeping in the wilderness. And the angel of the Lord comes and finds her, goes deep into the woods to find her. And the first thing that happens is he calls her by name. He says, Hagar. Which you and I, in our 21st century eyes, we blow right by that and don't pay attention to the significance of it. But do you realize nobody else called her by name? 
Abram didn't call her by name. In the text that we have here, Sarai didn't address her directly by name. She's just the slave girl. Her value in their eyes was only as significant as what she could perform for them. Have you ever been in a situation where you realized you were with somebody and your value in their eyes was only as, as good as your role, your duty, what you could give to them? Or maybe can I ask a more penetrating question than that? Is there anyone in your life right now, are there persons in your life right now for whom their value in your eyes is only as good as what they can do for you. And at first, all of us would say, well, of course not. We see everybody the same, and, and no. But, but you have to ask the question, is there anyone in your life for whom their value in your eyes, whether you say it or not, whether you admit it or not, their value is only as good as what they can do for you, what their role is, what their identity is for you. Because what this text begins to reveal to us is a new idea about this God. This God is beginning to introduce himself as different than all the neighboring gods of the region. Because when the world throws you away, this God calls you by name. When the world is done with you and they see only the value of what you can do for them and you're done, that Lord sees you and calls you by name. This God pays attention to the outcast. And do you see what happens? The Lord's angel says to her, you're going to have a son and you're going to name him Ishmael. When the translation of Ishmael means God hears, it means God hears. You're going to give birth to God hears. And here she is in the middle of the wilderness. She is violated. She is isolated. There's not a friend to be found. She's alone. And she is encountered by the God who hears her. When no one else could hear her. He not only hears her, but he understands her. He knows that she would rather be in Egypt. He understands, he hears that she would love to go home. But she can't. She would love to be at home where it's safe with her family and it's familiar, but she can't go home and she's weeping and nobody understands Ishmael. God hears. She was beginning to encounter the intimate awareness of our psalmist, the psalmist who penned Psalm 139, the one whose pen redeemed my life during those dark days when I felt as if it was never going to get better. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, oh Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me and such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your presence and where can I flee from your spirit? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. 
If I make my bed in Sheol, the darkest shadowed places of isolation and violation in the wilderness, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall guide me and your right hand shall hold me fast. Hagar met the God who hears her when everyone else threw her away. Are you picking up what I'm putting down this morning? So in response to what she has experienced, you know what she does? She gives God a name. She says, you are El Royi, the God who sees. And this place where I am, where I thought I was totally alone, this well, this spring, from now on will be called Be'er Laharoi, the well of the one who sees me. And don't let it be lost on you that this is the first time in the whole of the Bible, the first time that a human being gives a name to God and God accepts it. And it's from a female Egyptian slave girl who is far away from her home, can't get there, wants to be back. She's violated. She's isolated. She's weeping in the wilderness. And she gives God a name. What? And right there, we are introduced to a a powerful theme that carries on all throughout the whole of Scripture, and it is this. This God is different than any God you have ever encountered. This God is the God who hears and sees the cry of the outcast. Always. This God hears and sees the cry of the outcast always. Some 400 years after this moment, the people of Israel will be found in slavery. They'll be in bondage, serving in Egypt as slaves under a tyrannical leader, Pharaoh. And Exodus 3 tells us what happens. And now the cry of the Israelites had, has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Do you see what's happening there? This God hears and sees the cry of the outcasts. In Numbers, we read it this way, or in Leviticus, rather. In Leviticus, we read it this way. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. In Deuteronomy, we read these words. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing, and you are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. We even read in the great traditions of the prophets, written at a time when the people of Israel were in exile, when they were in Babylonian exile as refugees away from their home, we hear these words from Jeremiah, but I will restore you to your health and heal your wounds because you are called an outcast. 
Zion, for whom no one cares. You see what's happening. When the world throws you away, God calls you by name. Your name is Zion. I see you. I hear you. This is why when our Lord Jesus Christ had the opportunity to preach his very first sermon at his home synagogue in Nazareth, in in Nazareth of Galilee, we hear these words as he turned to the scrub or to the scroll of the prophet Isaiah The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is also why later at the end of Matthew in that great parable that describes the end of time, that great parable that tells us how it's all going to end when God is separating the sheep from the goats, he turns to the goats and says to them, look, I was hungry and you didn't give me food. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me in. And they will say to him in that day, when? When did we ever see you in those conditions? And the king will say to them, when you saw me in those most vulnerable positions and didn't respond, you were choosing to not respond to me. And then he will turn to those on his right and say, I was hungry and you did feed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink I was a stranger and you welcomed me in and then they will say but when did we ever see you in those conditions and he will say when you saw the least of these in the most vulnerable positions and responded in love then you responded to me this is why the theme continues to the end of the book itself that in James the brother of Jesus When he writes his letter about religion, he says there's some religion that's full of fluff. And there's some religion that really has grit. This is what he says. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Beloved, here is, are you hearing hearing my heart today? Because here, here, here is the, the, the one undeniable call in this way of faith. And that is, that is this. When you and I are living at a time when the rhetoric is high about what we do and how we respond to those who are vulnerable in this world. What do we do about refugees and immigrants and et cetera, et cetera. And it's fine that, that if you come up with an opinion and, and a response, a way to respond to that situation globally uh, with a certain set of factors, you're not alone. In fact, to be an American citizen, you may weigh in certain factors like maybe you base your opinion about what to do in this situation on sound economic theory, and you can back that up with precedence. Great. As an American citizen, you have the right to do that. As an American, you may say, I base mine on my understanding of constitutional law, how we ought to respond to these these folks that we're all talking about. Well, that's fine. As an American citizen, you have the right and the ability to do that. You may say, no, I'm basing all this on my idea of how to preserve and keep safe and secure um, uh, our, our families and our people, and that's fine. As an American citizen, you have the right to do that. But I'm here to say to you, as your pastor who loves you, that you and I will have one lens, one lens through which we look in this life that at the end of our life we are held accountable for. And that is, have we looked at life through the eyes of Jesus Christ? Have we looked at life and one another 
and the stranger and the outcast through the eyes of Jesus Christ. And if we have any other answer other than yes, if we, if we bolster our position and our response by any number of other factors, that is completely fine, but let's not call it the way of Jesus. We are called to live in the way that an ancient matriarch and patriarch began to introduce back in ancient Genesis, which is this. When I was alone, weeping in the wilderness, when I was violated and when I was isolated, no one else heard me, but he is the God who hears and who sees. And beloved, you and I just have to remember each time we gather here and worship that it's easy for us to forget how far into the wilderness God had to go to hear our cry. We forget how far and how deep into the dark wood God had to, to run when God heard you crying, weeping, alone, violated, and isolated. But if we remember, we cannot have any other approach to these matters in this life other than we must live in the way of the one who sees and hears. See, Baptist folks ought to know that. Baptist folks... Man, we used to be the persecuted. We used to be the ones who were beat up and persecuted and, and shoved down and forgotten and rejected and shoved to the side. And that's why throughout our heritage, we have always championed, championed the rights of the underdog, the ones who have no power. And Hagar says it all begins with asking, have you had an encounter with the one who hears and sees you? Because once you do, it changes everything. So that's how chapter 16 ends. She has a baby. She gives birth to God hears. And chapter 17 begins with a reiteration of the promise. God comes to Abram and Sarai and says to them, my promise still remains. I'm going to bless you. You're going to have children, land. You're going to have a name. And then he does something to take it up a notch. He says, I want all the men to gather with me together. And good news, bad news. There's a circumcision involved. Good news. You're part of an everlasting covenant. Bad news. Do you know how circumcision works? And then Abram and Ishmael and all the men associated with them undergo circumcision. And I must say something about circumcision today. By the way, there is no visual slide to, to, <laughs> to back up this part of the thing. So you're welcome. But circumcision predates Abram. This is so critical to understand. It predates Abram. Ancient peoples forever. In fact, current peoples now, even in places like the Maasai in Kenya, they do circumcision for young boys who turn men at the age of 13 as a rite of passage. As a rite of passage. Now follow this. Circumcision in the world today takes place for a variety of reasons, some of which are religious and some of which have nothing to do with religion. But in the ancient mind, it was a rite of passage, and here's why. It says, I'm entering into adulthood, and I will take upon my flesh a mark where I am cut and there is bleeding, a mark that reminds me I'm stepping into the vulnerability of adulthood. 
That in this moment, with this rite of passage, I recognize that I am not invincible. That life is vulnerable. And that I yield myself to a life that is bigger than me. And traditionally, women did not have to have that rite of passage because in all candor and with all respect, there is a perpetual reminder, not only in childbirth, but there is a a reminder each month that you are a part of a cosmic rhythm that is bigger than you, a cosmic cycle that you have to yield to whether you want to or not, right? So circumcision for men in the ancient day was an understanding, a confession, a yielding to the reality that, yeah, we are too. And so we will be cut in a most vulnerable place to recognize we yield to the vulnerability of this life. This is my new identity as a, an adult. I will step into my truest understanding of, of adulthood. That's what, that's what it was all about. And even in this text, Abraham and all the men with him step into that reality. But here, they receive a new identity. Now they are truly the people of God. This mark indicates that they are the children of God. They even get new names. Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. And God reissues the promise, I'm going to give you kids, so many, and you'll begin with Isaac. And Abram has this conversation with God and says, yeah, but what about Ishmael? I mean, look, he's a good-looking kid. I wish you could, literally, this way, I wish you could see Ishmael. And God says, you're going to talk to me about seeing? I see him. And I will bless him. See, I see you. And the life that I had in mind for you doesn't come this way. It comes the other way. And it occurs to me as I'm reading this this week again and again, it occurs to me that, you know what, I think that you and I, I think we all have an Isaac and an Ishmael in us. Every one of us has an Isaac and an Ishmael in us at the same time. You have an Isaac in you. Isaac represents that that way of life, that, that true and most authentic identity, who God wants you to be, who God is calling you to be. It's a life of faithfulness and loving and sharing and grace and humility. And it's who you were designed to be. This is your Isaac trajectory. And when you're living in it, you're living in your true self But there's also an Ishmael in you right now. Ishmael represents that trajectory of choosing your own way, creating your own promise, setting up your own life, and ignoring the trust that is required of God. And every day, you and I get to choose. We get to make a choice about who we will allow to be born in us each day. We get to choose every day which promise we will pursue. Will it be Isaac or Ishmael? Maybe that's a great question that we get to end on today. There is Isaac in you. A promise made by God and it takes waiting, it takes patience, it takes risk and vulnerability. And there is an Ishmael in you. And it's quick, it's easier, and you're much more in control. Mm -hmm. There is a narrow road and a wide road. And you get to choose which one to walk. Choose wisely. Let's pray. Most loving God, we, we yield before you this day because we hear you. Or at least we're trying. We're trying to hear you. We listen to the, to the witness of our ancient mothers and fathers in the faith. 
We hear what they would say. We hear what what you would call us to, to be, but we don't always muster the courage to be what you call us to be. You call us to live an Isaac life full of promise and humility and vulnerability and risk that leads to life eternal, but we so often, Lord, choose the way of Ishmael. We choose what is quick, what feeds the ego, what leaves us in control, and today we confess it. Will you show somebody this day, beginning with me, how to yield to your true promise every day? In Christ's name, amen.